This is a sound purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recording. Episode 7, Scott Walker's 1968 release, Scott 2. it is it is pretty awesome and i like the double layer that you're playing as the joker from goth yeah in the star wars universe i know like the reverse mark camel yeah yeah mark camel was a jedi who became the joker and now the joker's become a jedi it's a reverse mark camel it's very clever layers symbolism layers. talking about unique how's that for a thing <laughs> this is a sound purchase with jake word and stefan we are here to discuss iconic recordings, and today, Jake, we're talking about a recording from an awful long time ago. An awful, awful long time ago, yeah. I wrote this song a long time ago. I thought we hadn't done an oldie, so oh, like a proper oldie. So um, this, And this is a proper oldie, people. Yeah, Scott Walker's Scott 2. Which was released 52 years ago in 1968. Long time ago. Long time, Long time ago. ago. Scott 2 hit number one on the UK album charts, and lead single Jackie was even banned by the BBC. Mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of the songs, if they'd been released as singles, probably would have been banned by the BBC. Quite possibly. This is back when, you know, broadcasting had standards, so the BBC actually was banning quite a lot of stuff. Yeah. Wrongly or rightly, but also at the same time, you've got the N-word being used on TV shows <laughs> and so on, so yeah. double standards much? Oh, it was, it was a different time. You know, they were a bunch of bigots, but they were offended by anything slightly raunchy. The... Closeted sexual. Frigid bigots. That's what they There were. you go. Frigid bigots. Now that is an album title. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> Frigid bigots. Walker has quite the reputation amongst many of our musical icons. Mm-hmm. David Bowie. Of course not everybody wanted to ask you questions, David. Some just had a really sort of personal message that they wanted to deliver by Carrie Pigeon. Oh, no. Hi, David. This is Scott Walker. I'm coming to you via a very crappy old handheld tape machine, so I hope it's all right. I'm going to be a devil today and not ask you any questions. I'm certain that among the many messages, there'll be those about how you always embrace the new and how you freed so many artists. And this is, of course, true. Like everyone else, I'd like to thank you for all the years and especially for your generosity of spirit when it comes to other artists. I've been the beneficiary on more than one occasion, let me tell you. So have a wonderful birthday. And by the way, mine's the day after yours. So I'll have a drink to you on the other side of midnight. How's that? That's, that's amazing. Oh, I see God in the window. <laughs> 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 He's the boss, isn't he, Scott Walker? Um, You've absolutely got to love him. Damn, you've really got to me down, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, I think he's probably been uh, my idol since I was a kid. Uh, that's very moving. I want a copy of that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's pretty cool. But the thing is, before he was Scott Walker, obviously he was, well, he was a teen idol, wasn't he? Beforehand yeah. with the yeah, Walker yeah, Brothers. Yeah. And then kind of kicked out on his own with a series of self-titled LPs. In what was a, a, a very Peter Gabriel move yeah. prior to Peter Gabriel being Peter Gabriel. Because obviously <laughs> Peter Gabriel much. was still part of Genesis at this point. But yeah, speaking of Peter Gabriel, Brian Eno said he took music to a place that it actually hasn't been ever since. Oh. I, I'm, I'm assuming he's talking about the later albums. Yeah, I, I would assume so because they started yeah. to get quite out there. <laughs> A bit more avant-garde. Yeah. Alison Goldfrapp of the band Goldfrapp said, Scott Walker's songs are huge but intimate, unashamedly big, lush, decadent, and personal. Which ties into the first two albums. Scott 1 and 2 have huge orchestral backing. Mm. Massive orchestral backing. Yeah, very cinematic feel to a lot of the stuff on there. Yeah, very cinematic, which was part of the time, really. Yeah. When you think about the pop singers of that time, I'm thinking like Engelbert, Humperdinck, Tom Jones, they have massive orchestration behind them. Yeah. Lulu. 
I mean, you know, it was the it was the heyday, and we'll come on to this in a bit later. But of people like Bert Bacharach. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bert Bacharach. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Exactly. You know, yeah. Part of that as well was obviously he's got quite a powerful baritone voice, so the whole orchestral mm. thing backing it up sort of almost feels necessary. I think to you know just lend the power to it. Well, his voice seems to match the orchestra quite well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if if he was at a baritone, if he was like an alto or just a tenor, it might be a bit too thin. Yeah, possibly. That, the baritone with the orchestra is quite good. Yeah. We'll talk about his voice quite a bit, I'm sure. It's the reason to listen to the album. <laughs> so. In a Pitched Fork review, they describe him as, this is the Scott Walker of the late 1960s, as passionately invested in covers of Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, hit as in singing the word gonorrhea. Voted Mr. Valentine by Disc and Music Echo, the same year he released a song about a young man routinely raped by military officers. His best performances convey the deep tragedy of their subjects while managing to laugh at them with cruelty and indifference available to only the most total of douchebags. They then go on to say, especially now, you can recast him as some kind of mole inside the machine, exposing the innocent people of Britain to material that would make their middle-class spines shiver. Yeah. Someone was very into Scott Walker over at Pitchfork. I think you'll probably find a lot of uh, musos probably quite into scott walker yeah part of thing as well going back to the whole band by the bbc thing particularly impressive as a lot of the stuff they were banning was the the more kind of hard rock stuff but the fact that he was getting banned as a orchestral pop dude it says a lot about the content of what he was singing about yeah most of the album is washed with the wall of sound production which was probably in 1968 right at the height of its popularity yeah. The Beatles released Let It Be, I think, in 1970, and that was that was almost the beginning of the decline of these big, lush arrangements and kind of what was ushered in was the singer-songwriter movement from kind of Laurel Canyon in America with Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Neil Young, mm. James Taylor, Jackson Brown, and the Eagles. Uh, sort of like Americana and folk became more of a thing. Yeah, exactly. I I had a big Laurel Canyon phase a little while back. Yeah, I was going to say like uh, John Martin or Nick Drake. A good case study on someone that wasn't actually a nice person, but wrote some incredible music. Yeah, he had a good good stint with Phil Collins as well. Possibly some of his Did best he? work with Phil Collins. They like wrote wrote a load of stuff together. I think they were both going through problems with their wives. Uh. Oh, that sounds like Phil Collins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, actually, I got Genesis tickets the other day. Yeah, you said about it before. I think. I was going to travel up to Birmingham to see them. But they've just announced another London show, so I purchased tickets for London and sold my tickets for Birmingham. Put them back up on like Ticketmaster resale and they sold. Popular band. Even still, like, a lot of people want to see them. Who's coming back? It's, it's the main three. The, That's the, magic number. the real Genesis era. Okay. And I know I'm going to get a lot of haters for this. <laughs> I just want it to be stated that I'm a huge fan of Peter Gabriel. And I don't mind Peter Gabriel's Genesis. For me, you can't compare the two. I think yeah. Phil Collins' Genesis is just on a completely different level, as is Peter Gabriel's solo career. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a bit like comparing um, original lineup Fleetwood Mac to later Fleetwood Mac, isn't it? Uh, and I was wondering how I could segue into that. Peter Green died yesterday. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I got a black magic woman. I got a black magic woman. Yes, I got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can't see But she's a black magic woman And she's trying to make the devil out of me I thought he was already dead. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I didn't realise he was still alive. Still, what a guitarist, man. Oh well, black magic woman, albatross. I'm going to put it out there. Can I just shock you? I prefer the Santana version of uh, Black Magic Woman. <laughs> I prefer it. Don't give me that look. <laughs> I don't say that much about Carlos Santana, but... Uh... The poor guy died yesterday, and you're going to sully his name. He's dead, Joe. He was worse than dead. His brain is gone. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. No, Santana does, he does bring quite a different spin to it. It is a pretty decent cover. <laughs> Thank you. 
all of our talks of really good cover, that is probably up there as a as a really good reinterpretation of a song. Mm. Peter Green and Fleetwood Mac, their version is way more bluesy, but Santana really gives it that kind of Latin vibe, which is pretty cool. So the Wall of Sound production is right at probably its peak. Mm. And if we had done this maybe 10 years ago, I would have been all for it. I used to be a huge fan of way overproduced music. I used to think that Let It Be was a great album. And I remember comparing them side by side with Let It Be Naked and Let It Be which we did actually in the previous episode. There's a small clip of The Long and Winding Road because we mention it being overproduced. Mm. The first clip is with Phil Spector's Wall of Sound and then the second clip is very stripped back. And the older I'm getting, actually, the more stripped back and raw I, I like things. I don't need the cheap thrills of an orchestra sometimes. That's fair enough. I'm becoming the person that I hated about 10 years ago. <laughs> getting old before your time. Well, I think I'm just maturing. I think I needed everything to be wrapped up in a bow a long time ago ago. but now i i want to hear the dirt i want to hear the inconsistencies Mm. yeah i I get you so due to the lush orchestrations this work often sounds as you've said cinematic or as it belongs in a piece of musical theater Mm. we'll talk about that later on there's a couple of pieces where the orchestration is very kind of in a bernstein and it could almost be taken and lifted straight out of west side story yeah. Scott Walker himself has described this as a work of a lazy, self-indulgent man. Yeah. A lot of sophomore albums are overindulgent. We did uh, Blake Mills last episode, and there are some moments of self-indulgence, like the eight-minute instrumental that mm. kind of doesn't really do much, doesn't really go anywhere. No. I think it's the case for a lot of bands. It's like, right, the first album's been done. That's been what they've been working on for ages. Now we're in the studio and we're just going to do it. They're studio albums, aren't they? That's that's the thing. They're written generally at a studio. His future albums, Scott 3 and Scott 4, feature actually quite a lot less instrumentation. Yeah. He kind of backs away from it. There's only a year separating all three. Mm. So Scott 2, Scott 3 and Scott 4, there's only a year between the release of each of those albums. It is a sign for me, a sign of the maturing artist a little bit. You've also mentioned he's got a great voice, mm, yeah, which he does. His baritone vocals are really reminiscent for me of Nick Cave. Yeah, I get that vibe. And I'm I'm not surprised to see that Nick Cave takes a lot of influence from him. But I, again, I'm thinking perhaps he could have just been a little bit more subtle. There are some moments where he's just going for it with the vibrato and the expression, and he's almost overdoing it. A little mm. bit. He's kind of going, hey, look how good I can sing, everybody. Whereas if he wanted to sound like Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra is actually quite subtle mm. in what he does. And there are quite a few moments on this record where it does sound like a bit of a Frank Sinatra karaoke. I, I wonder, though, how much of that's to do with him wanting to kind of get away from that teen idol image and being more like, look, I can actually sing, you know. That's a that's a very good point, yeah. That's, Potentially. That's trying to trying to prove himself yeah but i've got no no sources to back that opinion up but uh it's pure conjecture but it's that's what we do here yeah exactly that's our that's our whole shtick before i i suggested scott too had you had any experience with scott walker at all none whatsoever none whatsoever never heard any of the no no and i spoke to a couple of friends tash who you, who you may remember from ground she's pretty knowledgeable about her music she's really into scott walker she sent me a list and Scott Two's not mentioned on any of the 10 albums that they say you need to listen to by Scott Walker. No, it's they, not. They list Scott 1, Scott 3, Scott 4, and then a whole bunch of others, but not Scott 2, which I was curious about. I think Scott 3 is the best of the self-titled ones, to be honest with you. But I think Scott 2 is better than Scott 1, for sure. To be fair, they're practically the same album. Yeah, a lot of the reviews I said was like, Scott 2 is good, but Scott 1's kind of better because we weren't expecting it. Yeah. Whereas now that we listen to Scott 2, we can kind of guess where all the turns are coming because we've already heard Scott 1. Yeah. More conjecture, but that might be what actually sparked him on to go, right, well, I need to do something way different with Scott 3. Yeah. I think with Scott 3 as well, he did, he wrote more of the songs. Yes. Because with this album, you can kind of split it up into Scott Walker songs, Jacques Braille songs, and then just sort of other songs that he was doing covers of. Exactly. Yeah. Burt Bacharach. Burt Bacharach. In fact, there were a couple that were from films, yeah. which we'll get to. Let's have a quick listen to Scott 2 by Scott Walker. From 
And if one day I should become a singer with a Spanish bum who sings for women of great virtue, best of both worlds, that's what you want. Here I am back home again. I'm here to rest. All they ask is where I've been. Hello, Mr. Big Shot. Say you're looking smart Naked as sin An army towel covering my belly Some of us blush Somehow knees turning to jelly Next quaking the sawdust ground He grabs my arm and out Into the famished night Don't bring me down Don't make me laugh Who cares how cold and gray the day may be The girl Are as fast as a game Or as bright as a flame And you're always to blame The girls are as pink as the light Or as dark as the night Ah, oh, but they're always right The windows of the world Are covered with rain I've watched her from the riverbanks I knew her when she danced with dreams Come next spring When all the world is new And fresh So the first song on the record is Jackie mm -hmm. Which is also the first single release The single that was banned by the BBC I think it was the only single, wasn't it, Jackie? Well, the first and only single yeah. released, yeah. And also the first of three Jacques Brel songs, all of which were translated by our boy Mort Schumann of Viva Las Vegas fame. Wow. Way to tie it back in to the previous episodes here, Jack. Yeah. It ties it into episode five with Ween and the Mollusk. It does. So the actual translation, because the, the original version's in, um, I think in French. Yeah, I think he wrote in French, but he was Belgian, yeah. So yeah, so it's it's not a straight up translation, Jackie. It's, it's more of a... Um, an interpretation. An interpretation, yeah, exactly. It sort of takes the feel of the, the original and ends it into English, just because I don't think there is really a direct translation that works properly for what they were trying to get across, which I think's better that they take the, the heart of the song rather than just going straight, the lyrics have to be this. Because this is what he was singing in French. Yeah. The narrator, this is only from the first verse, mind you. The narrator fears becoming a novelty act on the seaside. And if one day I should become a singer with a Spanish bum who sings for women of great virtue. Although, even though he fears it, Walker retains a sense of authenticity throughout his lifetime and ironically legacy bands have become the hot ticket now for, for shows i mean i just said i'm going to see genesis i mean phil collins he is almost dead i know his last tour was called <laughs> not dead yet but the poor guy has gone through it he's had like botched surgeries he's been put through the ringer in the last 20 years which is such a shame because he was he was the man. He was so cool. Oh, you know, it's things like he can't play drums now. He walks with a cane. cane. Sometimes yeah. he has to sit through concerts. And it's it doesn't matter because it's Genesis. Matter. I'm definitely going to go see Genesis. Mm. But the same with the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen. But the worst ones are the ones that are reforming. So I, I guess you could count Genesis there as a reformation because mm. the last time they played together was 2007. Think about Motley Crue. How many times have Motley Crue broken yeah. up? Yeah. It's... And done their big farewell tour, but now they're coming back. And, of course, there's the Eagles who broke up in 1980 and came back in 1994 and 95. And then they've come back every year and since. And they, then they broke up again. They did another farewell tour, and now they're back again. And, like, one of the main songwriters died a couple of years ago, Glenn Fry, but they're still touring the music. You know, legacy acts are 
are worth the money now mm. and you're, you're finding a lot of like these even just small time punk bands are, are reforming because there there's demand for it yeah i remember someone went to see the damned a few years ago that's like oh wow okay, I mean, why yeah. would you want to go see the damned in this day and age? it's like flipping heck if there's one genre i don't think it's possible to age kind of gracefully and still be doing the music it's probably punk isn't it you know, no one wants to go see yeah. a 60-year-old bloke playing the three chords and, you know, shouting about 70s politics. <laughs> Although yeah. I'd I'd like to see Johnny Lydon. Out of any of them, like, he's, he would. kind of remains a bit true to it, apart from doing his little butter advert. I buy country life because I think it tastes the best. He seems to have remained mostly true to the punk ethos. Yeah. It's like if all of the Ramones weren't dead... Would you go see the Ramones? I don't know if I'd go see the Ramones. No, I don't think I like enough of the Ramones music. I think they've got the songs and I can respect their place in history. Being that I was born way after they were around, I think there's been more interesting developments in punk music since then. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. But let's let's steer this back to... Steering it back, yeah. This song sounds like it belongs in a spaghetti western. Yeah, I, I kind of got that westerny feel to it. Ennio Morricone only died a couple of weeks ago, but <laughs> yeah. so maybe that's why it's it's fresh in my mind having maybe. listened to quite a quite a lot of those soundtracks. So I, I say I think sonically it sounds quite optimistic, you know. It's, mm. but lyrically, it's it's not because it's about some washed up drunk guy who's servicing overdressed ponces in a in a thing and telling them stories and stuff. But yeah. Musically, really upbeat, really happy. Yeah, yeah. I've got a note then. Although the music is highly produced, almost overproduced, a common thread of, of the time, this is going back to the Wall of Sound production, there are some really cool lines of the music, like the xylophone kind of vibraphone mm. lines happening. And my name was Juniper, then I would know where I was going, and then I would become all-knowing. My beard so... And the strings are in the song. I mean, the strings at the beginning of the song are pretty fantastic as well. In a stupid ass way. Yeah, I I didn't go into much lyrical detail on any of these songs. I I did a bit, but not overly so. But I say I, I think this kind of sets a tone for some of the stuff that he would later go on to do as well because obviously he was at this point in time he was sort of just trying to be Jacques Brel and you can you can sort of tell Jacques Brel was his hero wasn't he? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and you'll you'll hear when you get on to uh, the Walker original songs that he's really trying to get those kind of arrangements together and to and to write those kind of songs. He may or may not you know, succeed in that. But uh... well, I think through the experiment, he starts to find his voice a little bit. Yeah. We all start that somehow, though, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we all start trying to emulate our heroes and then start to gradually discover our voice. Yeah. The next song is Best of Both Worlds. Mm. Written by uh, Mark London and Don Black for Lulu originally. Best of Both Worlds. That's what you want. You know, whenever I hear Lulu, I can only think of Metallica and uh, Lou Reed. I am the table! <laughs> Why? Okay. And widely known for a Eurovision Song Contest 1969 winning entry, Boom Banger Bang. Back when Eurovision actually mattered. Did it ever matter? Are you discrediting ABBA? I'm pretty I'm pretty. I was about to say, I'm pretty sure Eurovision was just like a delivery vehicle for ABBA. They started it specifically for ABBA, even though it was around yeah. way before ABBA. They yeah. had to get the groundwork going. To actually make it worthwhile for ABBA. Yeah, exactly. Who have just announced, by the way, they're putting out five songs next year. Oh, really? They've got back together to see 
whether they could just get some songs together. They've recorded five new songs and they're going to go on tour holographically. Ooh, holographically. What, like Tupac? Yeah, so they've spent, I don't know, most of the lockdown, I guess, filming filming themselves, like motion capture for the performances. So they're not actually going on tour. Their holograms are going to go on tour. Why? Uh, Because they're going to get paid big bucks. Yeah, to but stay at home and not have to perform. Aren't holographic people really expensive to do? Well, they seem to be popping up all the time at the moment. Maybe it's maybe it's cheaper to do it now. I don't know. Maybe it's cheaper now, but you got to also think that one, ABBA probably have the money, and two, they're going to make a boatload of money on that tour. They've also just done a new Mamma Mia. That would be the true measure of how much of a fan anyone would be. In terms of the film, we haven't watched it for a little while. But you've seen it. Well, I've not seen it, no. I say we watched it. I mean, she's not watched it. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, it has got Pierce in it, so. We do like Pierce. We do like Pierce. Although, I don't know why we like Pierce, because I've only ever seen him really in the Bond films. And come on, the Thomas Crown Affair. I haven't seen the Thomas Crown Affair. I haven't seen Taffin. I really want to see Taffin. Maybe you shouldn't be living here. (laughs) I like Pierce. Anyhow. Back to Best of Both Worlds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Mark London and Don Black, who were quite successful, prolific songwriters for mm. a lot of people, mm. once again did a fair bit with Lulu. But it's fairly straightforward song in it. It's just boy meets girl, girl meets new boy. He throws a bit of a strop and then begs her to take him back. That's the song. <laughs> yeah, the the music to me and the music and the singing sounds like a high-end kind of karaoke of Frank Sinatra. Yeah. It sounds very much that's who he's trying to emulate. And I've just got a note to say that he's singing with a huge amount of vibrato. Yeah, he does pro- lay it on quite thick for this one. Almost overdoing it. It's it's almost like any note that is longer than a second, he's going to vibrato on. It seems to be a conscious choice of Scott Walker across this album. Mm. The next track is Black Sheep Boy. Black Sheep Boy. Written by Tim Harden, who had previously written for Johnny Cash, Joe Cocker, Glenn Campbell, Rod Stewart. Uh, very Once again, another very prolific man. Very prolific writer. And this one actually has a bit of a departure from the kind of massive wall of sound, like lounge singer sort of thing. This yeah. is very much, uh, this is like a country song. It is a country song. Yeah. There's some really excellent guitar work happening. Unlike the previous song, Best of Both Worlds, Black Sheep Boy, his voice is fantastic on this track. He's he's not overdoing it. He's actually reeled it in quite a lot. Mm. And it, it serves him a lot better when he's a lot more subtle and he's he's reeled it back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'll agree with you on that one. Mm. Do you know what it's about, this one? Um, Would you like to hazard a guess? There is a boy. Well, what what do you know about Tim Hardin? Do you know do you know, for example, how he dies? No. Oh, okay. Well, that, that might make it a bit harder. So, come on then. So, on the surface, obviously, it sounds like a, a prodigal son returns kind of thing. He's come from out west and it's all great. And he's, uh, it's actually about heroin. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Tim Harden had been clean for a very long time. Basically, went back to his hometown to visit his parents and uh, had a massive relapse. That's, that's what it's about. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he went to visit family. A local offered him some heroin and he just went, you know, and relapsed. And that's how he died. Not then and there, but in 1980, he died of a heroin overdose. Got a good song out of it, though, so swings around about, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Some of the best songs there are about here. A lot of the best songs. We've already discussed it, haven't we? I think we did before, yeah. That, that might have been episode two or three. Heroin by, uh... I know, that was cocaine, wasn't it? Damn. <laughs> You're going to say Eric Labden. <laughs> yeah. Heroin. <laughs> I guess it doesn't quite have the same ring, does it? Not quite. Yeah. Perfect day. Yeah. But out there, not a big fan, really, of Lou Reed. Well, I, I'm not surprised to say that Lou Reed took a bit of influence from Scott Walker, I think. You know, that whole kind of Bowie... 
Iggy Pop, Berlin, Blue Reed sort of scene. Mm. They kind of really pushed for the avant-garde. And yeah, again, at this point in time, I can appreciate his place in music. Yeah. But he's not my go-to guy. I don't reach for Lou Reed to put on quite a lot. Although I did do a performance of uh, Walk on the Wild Side in my final year of school that turned into like a 20-minute jam, apparently. (laughs) The teachers were forcing us off the stage. We we were getting yelled at. I had to write letters of apology to the sister school, to the headmaster, (laughs) because it was viewed that we hijacked the concert. But in effect, we, we didn't actually. We had the whole crowd singing with us it was actually quite cool so we'd go hey babe and the whole crowd would go walk on the wild side and i, I just said that just for 20 minutes for too long <laughs> yeah yeah i was drumming for that point so i was way at the back of the stage and i just had a teacher going stefan get off the stage <laughs> the classic uh hey jude sort of scenario where maybe but the crowd were into it you just can't stop the song i've said it before hey jude impossible to stop really Unless you just cut the power. Which, when I saw Springsteen, he played the final two songs with Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney joined him on stage and they cut the power. Because <laughs> they, they broke the curfew. Um, they played I Saw Her Standing There and Twist and Shout. And their Twist and Shout turned into a massive jam at the end. And uh, the council cut the power. And nice. the band didn't know on stage because obviously they had amps and foldbacks and so on, but the PA was cut. <laughs> so if you're at the front, you're all right. You could keep rocking out, but um... you could kind of hear it. But they, you could just see that they were way into it. They were, right. they were lost. Um, yeah, nice s- yeah. strip back. Good country Good song. Country song. The next track is the Amorous Humphrey plug. Yes, which is the uh, first Walker original. Starts off sounding really kind of ominous. Yeah. And this is the song that really reminds me of Nick Cave, or makes me think of Nick Cave. Obviously, Scott Walker was around before Nick Cave, but Nick Cave's my point of reference. Yeah, that's fair enough. I've got a um, just a review for this song from Spin.com here. In this early experiment with Brell-esque songwriting, Walker sneers, falls under pitch, and exhales in dramatic gusts. While new-matic horn and string umpas evoke the seamy imagery of the verses, the narrator finds escape in hedonism, as law would have us believe Walker did himself at the time, and the chords brighten up as the fun begins. The carousel begins to turn, see also Copenhagen from Scott Free, backed by circus-like bells and accordion. Tempo speeds up precariously as the merry-go-round spins, and the eponymous girls strike up a wordless chorus behind Walker, completing the delusion. Wow. Yeah. I like it, yeah. I've got that I really like the accordion after the chorus. I think it sounds brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Some of the stuff I've I've found online, people find it a bit hit or miss, that accordion. Some people love it. Some people absolutely hate it. (laughs) I think, yeah, this is... It's yeah, it's it's one of those instruments. I mean, the accordion when we talk about it in a school setting for music for like composition, it's well, that's the sound of France. Yeah. Which seems really stereotypical, but when you ride the metro in Paris, there's a busker on the actual carriage playing the accordion. I went uh, to the Pierre Lachaise Cemetery when I was in Paris to visit Jim Morrison's grave. Mm. And I was on the metro, I couldn't speak a word of French. I mean, I think bonjour was about the extent of my French at the time. So trying to get directions there and ride the metro was actually pretty sketchy. But I sat there and there was a bloke playing the accordion and I was thinking, how Parisian is this? This is this is the dream. This is the sound of Paris. I kind of like the accordion. I, I think it, it gives off that... Not necessarily just French. There's a bit of like an Italian vibe to accordion as well. Yeah. It's that kind of European. But only like summer European. You wouldn't have an accordion in the winter. No, it's got to be like a boiling hot summer day. Yeah, exactly. The horns in the chorus sound victorious. Trembling the roller skate 
They're yeah. really, really punching through. I've got here as well. It's a story of a down on his luck husband who finds his peace of mind scoping through the red light district at night time. Mm, that rings true to me. I mean, it would fit with the, a lot of the themes of the album as well. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's very kind of sultry, this album and adulterous. And it's those sorts of themes, which you can understand 1968 Britain wasn't ready to hear. Yeah. Yet, arguably, the album still went to number one on the British chart. So clearly people in Britain were ready to hear it, but maybe it was the older generation that weren't ready to hear it. Probably the case, wasn't it, really? Mm, yeah. So the next song is next. I was, I was wondering how you were going to go into this one. I only just thought of that one at the moment. I was expecting better. I was expecting oh, okay, better. Sorry. So, Jake, what's next? Uh, next is a song, uh, the second song by Jacques Brel on the album. And it's called? It's called Next. 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 Which I believe you touched upon earlier when you were mentioning one of the reviews. He released a song about a young man routinely raped by military officers. Yeah. It doesn't actually say that in this song, but... It's kind of implied a bit. It alludes it? to it, yeah. I'm definitely getting a Nick Cave vibe from this song as well. Yeah, for sure. Which makes me wonder, does, is Nick Cave into Jacques Brel? I was just a child, a like me. I followed a naked body, a naked body followed me. Next. Next. Yeah, maybe. Oh, actually, speaking of going back a track, Walt uh, Harden did a version of Stagger Lee. Oh, really? Not the Nick Cave version, obviously. Um, no. But like the original folk version. Oh, cool. Yeah. There you go. But yeah, this is about his experience with a military whorehouse, not not Scott Walker's shock brails. Okay, cool. And basically having a pretty rough time of it by the sounds of it. I really would have liked a little touch of tenderness, maybe a word, just a smile, some instant happiness, but no, no, next. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. And then just sounds like he has intimacy issues with women as a result of that traumatic experience. And since then, each woman I've taken to bed seems to laugh in my arms and a whisper through my head. Next, next. Yeah, there's more xylophone, vibraphone going on that sound really, really good. Naked as sin, an army towel covering my belly. Some of us blush, somehow knees turning to jelly. Next, next. And it sounds very Western as well, again, that kind of spaghetti Western vibe. Yeah. Which links up with Jackie, which was also a Jacques Brel song. Mm. Once again, all of the Jacques Brel ones, Mort Schumann did the translation for. So once again, it's not a, a direct translation. It's in the theme, in the feeling of it. I haven't got any more for next. Shall we move on to the next one? Let's move on. Next. Girls from the Streets. Another track written by Walker. Some fantastic panning at the beginning. Very dramatic. He seems to have a thing for slapping posteriors because in this song it says, He's a bummy, slaps her ass. And in next, the previous song says, The queer lieutenant who slapped our asses. No, he didn't actually write that one, though. No. He didn't write that one, but you know, still. He chose that song to sing, didn't he? Exactly. So. And there's Wicked Accordion halfway through. Uh, well, then the next song is Plastic Palace People. Oh, man, what a tune. What a tune. Another track written by Walker. Yeah, another track written by Walker. It's just the first Scott Walker song I ever heard. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was on a it was on an enemy compilation CD called Under the Influence, uh, which was basically like a, a compilation of, of artists have had mentioned artists that had, had influenced them. So it was right. people like, you know, Radiohead, Jarvis Cocker, Fatboy Slim, I think Travis. There was, there was loads of people on there and they basically selected a song from an artist that influenced them. This was on there. And the only other one I can remember from that album was a Captain Beefheart song. It's the first time I ever heard Captain Beefheart. Yeah. But yeah, so this was the first Scott Walker song I, I ever heard. Um, really stuck with me, actually, at the time. Whether or not that was just because, once again, 
great voice. Or if it was just something really different to what I'd been listening to when I was probably about 15. Um, and at the time, I was you know, into fans like the 80s Matchbox, Beeline Disaster and Nirvana and Radiohead. And so I was getting into Soul Wax and that sort of thing. But I didn't actually listen to any of his albums because streaming wasn't really a thing back then. And I didn't have any money to be going out and buying albums, really. Uh, all the albums I had, I'd gotten off my, my dad, maybe my brother but a lot of it was off the old man. Do you know, I think the first time I ever listened to like a full album on YouTube was when we were listening to Paranoid. <laughs> really? In the flat together. Because <laughs> prior to that, YouTube wasn't really for music or video or any of this. No. It was for like Charlie Bit My Finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Double Rainbow. We didn't, we weren't paying for Spotify or Deezer or anything like that. I don't think they existed, did they? Well, when we were living in the flat. Yeah, they, they, they did, but I don't think they were quite as... They must have been pretty fresh. They weren't like big mainstream things yet. Yeah. I mean, I remember back in the day, I've got a bit older, so like 16, 17, LimeWire was the way to go if you wanted to... You'd download the entire Bloodhound Gang discography and it'd end up being a, a, a massive Bill thing of viruses. <laughs> it's... That, that used to haunt me. Not that I'm admitting to <laughs> illegally downloading things, but the amount of times you go to download it and it would just be like, my fellow Americans. My fellow Americans, I would once again like to say that I did not have sexual relations <laughs> with that woman. <laughs> oh, it was the Rickroll of its day. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh. Anyway, yeah, so back to uh, Plastic Palace people. Yep. Very um, kind of dreamy kind of feel to a lot of the verses, doesn't it? Yeah, the Guardian said it's not rock, but there's touches of psychedelia. Yeah, well, that, that's yeah. kind of more into the host chorus, pre-verse, second chorus. They actually go further to compare it to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Oh. They say, like Lucy, we float through the dreamlike verses, there you go, dreamlike verses in 3-4, mm. then suddenly become grounded in 4-4 four, four with the rude awakening of the chorus. Yeah. Plastic palace people. Sing silent songs, big dream to love. It's almost kind of got like almost childlike sort of innocence to the verses with, with Billy floating around with his balloon attached to his pants. This cuts into the chorus, very bleak sort of plastic conformity of actual life. And then it gets a bit weird. Yeah, allegedly written about balloon boy Billy Crawford. There he goes, up about 30 feet. And here he comes, down for a perfect landing, safe by a leg. It's a great sport, and no doubt Billy is enjoying every minute of it. Well, almost every minute. He's coming down again. Hey, grab him quick. Oh, really? Okay. Who would be attached to a giant balloon and wail crowds during the Great Depression. He oh, right. Attached to a balloon. As a four-year-old, this is, mind you. Oh, right. His <laughs> parents actually just, like, clipped him onto a balloon and went, all right. That's... I mean, I don't think they made money off it. I think it was more just to kind of, like, lift everybody's spirits. Everybody would be like, hey, look, there's a boy on a balloon. I, I hadn't heard about that. That's... Uh... Well, I tried to do some, some digging and research into this. There's not a lot of sources. Which is weird. You'd think something like that would be quite well documented. There's a couple of articles where he gave when he was like 84. Was he still doing it? <laughs> yeah, it's an 84-year-old, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it begins to pick up once the intro is done. The intro is quite long-winded, shall we say. Yeah. It's not a bad track. It doesn't go in for the... Uh, there's a, I can't remember what they called, but there's basically a, a quite commonly held belief that you should get to the first chorus within a minute preferably within 30 seconds yeah i was gonna say 30 seconds that's what i tell uh, students at school yeah. it's like people aren't um, gonna give your track any more than 30 seconds when you write a song so you've got to get to the chorus the hooky yeah. part in 30 seconds but i don't know if that's only applying to singles or because obviously this wasn't a single this was just a, a track on the album yeah so well most of the songs i'm writing the we're only just getting into it you know at 30 seconds let alone four minutes yeah I mean, I played in a band for years where 
most of the songs were about six minutes long and you wouldn't get into the chorus till minute 30, minute 45, two minutes, you know, big intros for the beginning, long verses and then short chorus, (laughs) really short choruses. Long song's a good song. Yeah. This is is the thing, because a lot of the um, instrumentation and the production of this album is is fairly full-on and samey, there's not a massive amount you can sort of extrapolate from it from song to song. You almost have to do an overarching album sort of thing. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't even find information on like the orchestras that were playing with him. No, it was it was difficult. Any of the players. All I could really get was information about Wally Stop. Mm. Of course, who was the orchestrator? Mm. The next song is "Wait Until Dark." Yeah, "Wait Until Dark," which was written by our boy Henry Mancini. Oh, Our boy Mancini for yeah. the film of the same name. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Oh, from what I've heard, it's quite a good film. Uh, well, it's written by Henry Mancini, uh, Jay Livingston, and Ray Evan. Mm. And a short note here, just excellent guitar work again. Excellent guitar work. I said uh, a good old croon I've got on mine. Mm, yeah. Uh, which probably could have said for some of the others as well, but... Well, it kind of, that's an overarching thing for the album, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's what I'm getting at when I say it sounds like a karaoke Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Is that he's he's crooning, really. And like I say, he's not a, he's not a bad singer by any stretch. Just for me, he's overdoing it half the time. That's fair enough. But yeah, so Mancini, great piece of music. Yep. Very lovely. Just just nice. It's just nice. Just nice. There's no debauchery in it. That's what kind of makes it a bit boring. Yeah, it's quite tame. Because it's, it's on an album of such dark stuff or an album of kind of semi-exciting themes, you know, we're talking about some really out there stuff, but this is just like a normal song and it just kind of doesn't actually have a place on the album really, but it is still mm. a good song. Yeah. And it's a good performance. The next song then is The Girls and the Dogs. Mm-hmm. Another Jacques Brel set of lyrics. The final one, yep. Yeah. All I've got written down for this one, other than final Brel song, The Sims. Listen to The Sims buying music. I never played a lot of Sims. Uh, you don't have to. Just just go to YouTube, search Sims buy theme one or three or any of them. The girls are as fast as a... Yeah, this is the one. The girls and the dogs. Girls who are dogs, who like girls, who do dog. No, okay. Wait, what? No, don't go there. Great use of xylophone or vibraphone. Again. It's just fantastic. This song makes me think of Broadway musicals, the old Broadway musicals. Yeah. It's a song about the frailty of men. Mm. Put it nicely. Pitchfork described the song as a psychopathically chipper song. (laughs) <laughs> about how men are longing, women are fickle, and dogs are lucky to not care either way. <laughs> oh, they've, hit, they've hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Spot uh, on. Can, is there Psychotically anything else to say? chipper. Psychotically brilliant. chipper, yeah. That's, that's probably the most English thing I've ever heard. It's a psychotically, uh, psychopathically chipper. Psychopathically chipper, sorry. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Did you have anything for that one? Outside of the Sims music stuff, no, not really. It made me want to download the Sims again. Okay. Windows of the World is the next track. Ah, yep, that's the old Bert Bacharach. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bert Bacharach. Written by Bert Bacharach and Hell David. We've gone full circle and we're returning to our Frank Sinatra impression. Or perhaps, and this is a deep pull. <laughs> Perhaps is it more of a Tony Clifton approach? Oh, maybe. Maybe. I I was going to say, for anyone who doesn't know who Burt Bacharach is uh, and how David, they wrote about 95% of all music ever. 
He's still he's still gigging, by the way. He's still touring. He's like ninety two. That's like flipping heck. So Windows of the World, the instrumentation is rather relaxed and subtle. Mm. In this piece, it's quite nice. The windows of the world are covered with rain. Where is the sunshine we once knew? It's an anti-Vietnam song. Is it really? It is. I didn't think Burt Bacharach and how David went in for that sort of thing. Uh, when it was written, and it was only written a couple of years beforehand, I think 60... In fact, it was 67, I think. Okay. Yeah, how David's, I think his two sons, I think, were old enough to be drafted, which he wasn't best chuffed about. So when you look at the lyrics, it's actually quite obvious that that is what it's about. Windows of the world are covered with rain There must be something But at the same time, it's it's subtle enough that it wouldn't, you know, kick up the horns there, get them blacklisted or anything. That's the thing. Yeah. The next song is The Bridge, which was written by Walker. It was. Yep. It was the final song on the album written by him. Yeah. Bit lazy, really. He only wrote a quarter of the album. <laughs> uh, yeah. But there, again, that's another thing very much of the time. That's kind of what made the Beatles really stand out. Uh, is that they wrote so much of their own music, but then again, they had a lot of covers to yeah. begin with. There were a lot of covers on their It used on their to just album. be the done thing, wasn't it? But that's why you used to get things like Tim Pan Alley. That's why the money was there, because they'd crank out the songs, and then as many people as you liked could record them. Yeah. Uh, is it the Brewer Building in New York? Yeah. I can't remember what they called, but there was, was an it? equivalent in Denmark Street. Before it was a musical instrument street, it was home to a lot of people who wrote sheet music. Oh, and that, right. that's why this that's why they used to be able to get away with just doing loads of different covers of things because it was all done by sales of sheet music, really. Yeah. Wasn't it? So yeah. that's why it was so prevalent. And probably why you can't get away with it now. Well, I've I've put the the bridge sounds cinematic. I've watched her from the river banks. I knew her when she danced with yeah, it does. It's, it's, it's lends itself to cinema. But then that's the only note I've got. It's a bit of an odd one. I'm, I'm looking at the lyrics. I was trying to work out whether or not he's being literal or whether or not he's not. It's an odd one. I wouldn't be able to tell you. Either way, though, once again, it, it's one of those things, as you say, there's, there's not much to it that's different to the rest of the album. It's very much in keeping with the rest of the album. Yep. Which, once again, I don't know how much of that is down to Scott Walker, how much of that is down to uh, Johnny Franz, and how much of that is down to Wally Stock. It's really hard to find a production note, so it's hard to tell how much... Yeah, it's probably a combination of the three, along the lines of the producers going for a certain sound. Because it's only his second album, Walker might not have had much input. Oh, he'd, he'd worked with Johnny Franz before with the Walker brothers. And they did Scott Walker 1 together, right? I think so, yeah. Maybe the record company's not giving him a lot of wiggle room. Maybe it's just the fact that they're all the orchestration's done by the same guy. Yeah, maybe. So we'll, we'll come back on to that, discussing that sort of paradigm a little bit later. The last song on the album is Come Next Spring. Once again, from the film of the same name. I've got one note for this one, and it, it's written by Max Steiner and Lenny Adelson. That's it. Yes. That's all I've got. <laughs> I just put nice, wholesome loveliness, mm. which once again kind of makes it a bit boring compared to what it, everything else that's on there. Yeah. It's a good song. It's fine. With that, dear listeners, we've run the gauntlet. We find ourselves into the final stage of The Running Man. Stick around. Did you have that written down? I didn't. A list of running man quotes. No, no, no. I See, here's Sub-Zero. Now. Just plain zero. So, Jake suggested this album. So, he's going to ask me three questions that we ask each other based around our findings from this record. So, Stefan, favourite track from the album? From this album, I'm going to have to go Black Sheep Boy. Back home 
Whack Sheep Boy. It's probably the song with the least orchestration. It's probably the song that's kind of almost the rawest. No, no, I'm not basing this off lyrical content. I just That's the song that really sticks out to me. It's certainly one which is a lot more, I'd say, these days, conventional, I'd say. Exactly. Back yeah. in the day, probably less so. I'd say the orchestral stuff was more the thing at the time, but these days it's, it's certainly much more what you'd expect to hear you know, from a country album, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Although I will want to just tag on to the end of that. I do also enjoy Brando, which he did with Sano. And Boy Child from Scott Forrad. Mm. I'd put those up there as well as, as possibly better songs than Black Sheep Boy. But for this album, Black Sheep Boy is my favorite. That's, that's fair enough. Mm. What about yourself? Uh, for myself, I mean... You kind of already said it. Plastic Palace People's a very nostalgic one, but listening back to the album these days, it's probably actually next. Oh, okay. I'm not sure why. that it, it, it just seems to grab me a bit more. But I do quite like the, like the chorus for Plastic Palace People, which just sticks in my head. Like I could, you know, I'll be quite often at work, be at work, like doing the washing up after I've made... You know, after we've closed up and we had 60 cups of tea throughout the day, I'll just be there like, Plastic Palace people in fields of clay and granite grey. You know, I'll just be doing that. Uh, there was a nice use of vibrato there. You didn't overdo it. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably, once again, more of a lack of technical facility than anything else. <laughs> Yeah. So it's a toss up between those two. At a push, I'll, I'll go for the nostalgia bin. Actually, I'm going to revise my earlier answer now. I'm thinking about it again. Plastic Palace People. Plastic Palace People. That's the one. Okay. Just because I'll be at work and sing it. <laughs> Fair enough. Even Fair if it's enough. just the chorus. Dream too long, their memories just stare. Plastic Palace, Alice. So, where does this feature, Stefan, on your top ten? I will be putting this into seventh place. I thought you would. This is our seventh episode. I'm going to be putting this into seventh place. This album is a letdown, simply just because it was the time that it was recorded. I have a feeling that if they recorded this a couple of years later, after that Laurel Canyon boom, after the kind of folk revival boom, and it was just him with a guitar, it might come out a bit better. To be honest, like you say, the difference between this album coming out and Scott Free. Yeah, exactly. The the production difference on that. Like like I've said before, I used to be all for the wall of sound, but now given that Phil Spector, you know, murdered someone and stuff like that, you kind of can't take the wall of sound so seriously. But I did put in my notes here, perhaps it's this mistake of like over-orchestration that paves the way for Nick Cave, for instance, who have dark thought-provoking lyrics, but they also Mm. leave enough space in the mix for those lyrics to kind of be heard, understood, or taken in. It seems I'm, I'm not totally alone in this thought process because the Vinyl Factory lists the remaining three Scott records in their 10 introduction records, but leaves Scott two out which ironically is the most popular album in terms of sales in the charts. Mm. So it's going to go underneath all the other ones that we've studied so far. That's fair enough. For myself, it's going straight in at number five. Because I wasn't a big on the Blake Mills one, and I just really hate Mark Ronson. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, fair enough. Fair I'd, enough. I'd much rather have the wall of sound production going on from this than Mark bloody Ronson. Plus, I think there, there are a few, like I say, particularly the, the ones that weren't Jacques Brel or his original ones where they're just a bit sort of bland. It's a bit kind of like what you're doing on here. 
So yeah. It's not it's not an overly cohesive album in that sense. No. I, I feel like it would have been better served if he'd basically if he'd written more stuff for it, like he did with Scott Free. Yeah, well I think there's ten songs out of the fourteen on Scott Free were written by him. Yeah. But still good. It's just yeah. So, final question. Stefan, and I think I know your answer. Is this a sound purchase? <laughs> I don't believe it to be a sound purchase. Not this time, girl. Not this time. Not this f***ing time. No! No, 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 no! No! No, 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 no! No! Not this time! No f***ing way, no f***ing way! No f***ing way, no f***ing way! You made me look alright. I don't believe it to be a sound purchase. There are other records by Walker that possibly are. Both Scott 3 and Scott 4 abandoned the wall of sound, as we mentioned as well as the lovesick covers. And like like I said, they both only came out a year after Scott 2. Mm. I'm more interested in his 2014 release. I think it's Seuss with Drone Mittler's Son O. I think that's far more interesting for me than this one. This one is really let down by the time that it was recorded. Yeah, that's fair enough. To be honest, I would probably agree with you actually on, on that. Surprise, I, I would buy it. But I'm a Scott Walker fan. I, I quite like most of what he does, and I, you know, I, I know I like the album. Um, but Scott, like you say, Scott three or four, probably better albums. Tilt. If you want to go into some of his more, I say more modern stuff that was released in ninety four, ninety five. That's definitely more modern than nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, it was mid nineties. I can't remember the exact year, but um, that's that's a good album. I mean, part of the other reason I chose this was going to be this or. A Julian Cope album or a Teardrop Explodes album because Julian Cope was massively influenced by Scott Walker. There you have it. So, wait, did you did you say that was a sound purchase or not? Uh, I would say probably not. I'd say if you're going to get a Scott Walker album, get Scott Free. So you suggested a, an album that you don't even believe yourself as a sound purchase? For general people. I mean, I would say it is a sound purchase if you know... It depends if you know you're into that wall of sound kind of thing. If 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 it's your if you know that's your style of thing. If you've never heard of Scott Walker before, and you've not really listened to a lot of music from that, particularly from that era and that that kind of genre, I can't honestly recommend it. To be honest, I mean, if you're a, if you're big on um, like you say, like bands like Nick Cave, even then, I'd still say go for Scott Free. Yeah, the thing is though, it remains an iconic recording. Oh, absolutely! It's a to date album, it is still his most successful recording. His most successful album, yeah. But it's it's kind of a it's kind of sits in a weird place where I don't know if I can actually recommend that you go out and buy it without maybe listening to it first. Yeah, it's in like a musical purgatory, isn't it? it yeah, wildly exactly. successful yet not quite actually maybe critically as successful as as a following album exactly yeah which is kind of partially as well i suppose why i, why I suggested it it's a bit more interesting mm. than just kind of suggesting things that we know we're going to really like because i hadn't listened to this album for a few years i i had never listened to it i had never never heard of him before so it's it's a nice eye-opener for me especially yeah and i thought it would be something a bit different to Basically, everything's been conventional sort of band-based stuff with guitars, drum kit, and you know we haven't really had anything a bit different. So I thought, let's go for it. All right. Well, then next week we've got something that's uh, a bit more conventional, yet a little bit more different. We're doing Face Value. Face Value by Phil Collins. Yeah. <laughs> he totally was referencing Spinal Tap, by the way. Oh, he was? When I found that clip he he has this little chuckle after it and i was thinking oh okay and uh suddenly i just liked phil collins that little bit more he's always a joker it's <laughs> phil i do like him but we not face do... value i just don't I was like gonna say should value. we do a phil collins one i mean i think he's too popular did he do he did the music to brother bear i didn't realize that yeah it's terrible no, worse than tarzan he won an academy award for tarzan doesn't mean it was good. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, fair oh, enough. Don't get it wrong. Son of Man was a banger. It's unanimous. 
Scott 2 by Scott Walker is not a sound purchase. I am Stefan and this podcast was called A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Check the show notes and up-to-date top tens list and other musings at stephsquatch.com. You can engage with us on social media under the handle Steph Squatch Blog. Other episodes of A Sound Purchase are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts and stephsquatch.com. And if you've enjoyed the sounds during this episode, you can go to your local record store and pick up a copy of Scott 2 by Scott Walker from 1968. Support local business.